Our scripture reading today will be taken from John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. This is the word of God. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Thus says the Lord. Thanks, Chipta. Um, I'll put this mic here. And thanks, Tati. Uh, two more announcements real quick before we start. Um, we originally have planned for our membership class to happen in September. But there are interest, and I think if we have more interest, we can start one earlier, before September. So if you are a visitor or you are uh, somebody who's thinking about membership, um, you want to just want to get to know the church even more, uh, please sign up front. There's, there's a membership class sign up. Please put your name there, information there, and we can include you in the membership class. Membership class is just uh, three Sundays in a row, and it doesn't mean you're a member if you join. It doesn't mean you're committed to anything. It just, mean that, it just means that you want to get to know the church more, what we're all about, who we are, what we believe, our leadership, et cetera, et cetera. So if you do want to know more about us and check out the class, please sign up your name, and if you have enough people signed up, we can do one earlier before September. Last announcement, uh, there's some mercy ministry date change. Uh, some of you know about the uh, thing we did last Thursday with, the, with Karnakasi, and, and you guys already have on your calendars future dates of when we're going to do other things. Uh, just know that those have changed. Um, we, we did one this Thursday, which was unexpected but was great. So that's going to replace the one that we were planning on doing in June. So if you have in your calendars a mercy ministry event in June, that's no longer going to happen. But we're going to change it to maybe the 1st of July. We're not sure when yet. But, but keep your ears open to that. If you're signed up as a, in the Mercy Ministry team, you'll get a WhatsApp, text, or emails. Uh, but we'll also announce it at church. Um, if you want to join the Mercy Ministry team um, and, and partner with, with uh, Pantea Suan Karnakasi, let us know. Let me know. Um, uh, let, let, let Chipta know. Uh, and then we can in, include you in that. All right? Thanks. So today... In our sermon, we're going to continue through the book of John. If you've been with us in the past, you know that we have been going through this whole book, and right now we are at the end of chapter 3. This is the last sermon on chapter 3. And at the end of this chapter, we see John, the author, again taking a break from the actual story because John is a gospel, right? A gospel is, is a type of literature in the Bible that tells you about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, what happened who he talked to, what he did. And, and he took a break from the actual storyline. And, uh, and, 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 and I think in chapter 3, verses um, 16 to 21, we talked about two weeks ago, he took a break from the storyline, and he kind of intrudes into the plot. He intrudes into the story, and he kind of gives a commentary, a narration of what's actually going on in the story. He does it again in our passage today, John chapter 3, verses 31, 36. This is kind of like, you know, what we talked about two weeks ago, when, when you're watching a movie and the story's going on and there's a plot line and there's things happening in the movie, all of a sudden the plot line is put on pause and you hear the narrator voice. 
speaking to you from the movie. There, there's, a, there's a narrator talking to you. And, and the purpose of this narrator talking to you is to explain to the viewers, in this case, the readers, what about the storyline, what about the events that just happened is maybe not so clear to them. The narrator needed to explain what's going on. They needed to explain um, um, things in the story that's not so easily grasped or understood by the readers so far. And that's why John decided to, in these five verses, step in and explain to us, I know you have saw a lot of things that Jesus did. Let me explain to you what it is that's not so easily understood by the reader. So to understand this passage today, we must ask the question, what about the story so far that can be so easily missed by the readers? That John the author finds so important, he decides to intrude into the story. He decides to assert himself into the story. There's three things I want to point out, and these three things may at first seem disconnected, but I hope that as we continue the sermon, we will see how they're actually interrelated. The three things that John considers not so obvious to the reader, but is absolutely crucial for us to grasp if we are to grow in our relationship with God, or if we are even to know God at all, are these three things. The reality of Jesus' divinity, the way to view theology, and the surprising command. The reality of Jesus' divinity, the way to view theology, the surprising command. Before we begin, uh, pray with me. Father, in your word you just said that he who is of the earth speaks in an earthly way, but your son, the word of God, who is made flesh, as John chapter 1 says, testifies to us in a heavenly way, things that mere flesh and blood cannot receive. And Lord, we beg you that as you give us this revelation through human language, through the Bible, through scripture, you also impart to us this spirit that can make us accept and embrace and understand this and live our lives in obedience to this. We're dependent fully on you, and we beg you, Lord, be merciful to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Point one, the reality of Jesus' divinity. So, out of all the passages that I've preached on so far, I've only preached for eight months, so it's not that many passages, but out of all the passages that I've preached on the past eight months, this one is by far the hardest. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out why. It's not really that complicated to study, not anything particularly difficult or hidden in the theology that it presents, but yet I started writing the sermon. So usually what I do is I study the passage Tuesday to Wednesday, and I start writing the actual sermon from Thursday to Saturday. So I started Thursday night, and until 2 a.m. Saturday morning, this is the first time I've ever experienced this, 2 a.m. Saturday morning, I wasn't even able to come up with one point. I was staring at a black computer. Thursday night till Saturday 2 a.m. in the morning. And I don't even know why it's so hard. I wasn't able to come up with a reason. I'm like, why? Why? There's nothing in this passage that's particularly hard to study. It, it, was, very, it, was, it was very clear what the theology behind it was. But I realized that though this passage wasn't hard to study, it was very hard to present to you all in such a way that would make you feel like this passage is meeting 
a felt need. Here's what I mean. So usually before I start the sermon, I like to explain the congregation and package the sermon in such a way that shows people why the doctrines in this passage matter. Or in other words, how the doctrines in this passage can meet your felt need. For example, a felt need would be how it affects the way you navigate through your career. That's a, that's a felt need. Or the affects the way you view relationships. That's a felt need. Or how, how, can this, how can the doctrine of this passage encourage you through a difficult time in your life? That's a felt need. And I, until 2 a.m. Saturday morning, I can't figure out how the doctrine of this passage can help you meet a felt need. Because all John does is simply teach about Jesus' divinity and the Trinitarian nature of God. That's all he does. So, of course, the side of me that idolizes people's opinions, which is a big side of me, it's not a good side of me, doesn't want to preach a boring sermon. So I said to myself, there's no way I'm just going to teach on a theological doctrine without connecting it to your felt need, because that's just boring. And I'll be anything but boring, because I really want people to like me. Right? So I was staring at this computer screen, 2 a.m. in the morning. I don't know what to write. And then I realized something I think is rather significant, that I've been looking at this whole passage the wrong way the whole time. It'll make sense what I mean by the second point, but for now, I want to try something different. I want to try something I haven't done in the past. I'm just going to simply teach the theological truth that this passage talks about, that John here is teaching on, which is about Jesus' divine nature and the Trinitarian nature of God. And I'm going to do so without connecting it to any of your felt needs, even at the risk of being boring. And I hope that it'll make sense by the second point. All right? So let's, let's try that. Let's get to it. Let's talk about the theological claims that John the author is making here. One, the divinity of Jesus. And two, the Trinitarian nature of God. Let's, let's begin with verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. First, we see John saying, he who came from above. Who is John the author referring to as he? Well, the person of Jesus. If you remember, remember this is a commentary on what's happened before. So if you look at the previous story, you will see that John, uh, John the Baptist, not the author, a different John, John the Baptist was baptizing people, and then Jesus came and baptized near him, right? And people were walking to Jesus and leaving John the Baptist, and his baptism. So the, the subject we're talking about here is the person of Jesus. He, the person of Jesus, the walking, talking, breathing, baptizing human person Jesus, John is explaining here, came from above. This person that's walking, talking, breathing, baptizing, he, his origin is not like any other man. And not only does John the author describe of him as coming from above, but also having authority above all, verse 31 continues. He who comes from above is above all. Not above some, not above most, but above all. And then verse 35 continues to affirm. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The Father did not give some, not most, but all things into his hands. Biblically, to be above all things, to have ownership over all things, as the person of Jesus is described of having, is a quality only belonging to Yahweh. It's a quality only belonging to God. Psalm 24, verse 1. 
The earth is the Lord's, Yahweh's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. John here is echoing a claim he already made in chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, that the person of Jesus is the light who came into the world. He is God who is made flesh. And just let me reiterate here, the divinity of Jesus is not only affirmed by John in our passage today, but you see it throughout the scripture. Jesus in other books in the New Testament, he claims to have the authority to forgive sin. Remember the person who came in and he, was, uh, he couldn't move and he asked Jesus, heal me. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. It's like, I didn't ask you to forgive my sins. I asked you to heal me. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Who has the authority to forgive sin? Only God. No man. Jesus in other places accepts worship. No man can accept worship. The apostles in the book of Acts, when people were mistaking them for, for divine beings and worshiped them, they ripped their clothes and they said, no, no, no. No human gets this, only God. But Jesus gladly receives worship. John 10.30, Jesus himself affirms, I and the Father are one. In the opening of this book, John claims that Jesus is God made flesh. The whole book of Hebrews affirmed that Jesus is God. But then in making this claim, John, our author, affirms another doctrine, also confirmed by the rest of Scripture, which is not only about Jesus, the person of Jesus being God, but also of the Trinitarian nature of God. Let's look at verse 34. It gets kind of complicated. For he whom God has sent, talking about Jesus, utters the words of God. He's saying that Jesus was sent by God. I thought you said Jesus was God. Then again, verse 35, the Father loves the Son. Who is the Son? Jesus. And has given everything into his hand. So this God that's now described as the Father is the one who sent and gave everything to Jesus, but yet Jesus owns everything and is above everything. So it seems like the Father is a different person than Jesus, has a different role than the Son, but yet is equal to the Son, comes from the same place as the Son from above, has the same authority and ownership with the Son. So is John saying that the Father is God, or is Jesus God? The answer is yes. And that's the confusing nature of the Trinity, which only makes sense that if a finite being condescends himself and reveals the fullness of who he is by human language, it only makes sense that finite man can't fully comprehend him. If you can fully comprehend him, then that wouldn't make sense. So don't be freaked out by mystery. That's what's expected when the infinite meets the finite. So John is saying that the Father is God, Jesus is God, and we enter into the complex doctrine of the Trinity. As Scripture describes God in three persons, yet one God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three mentioned in our passage, by the way, if you read your pronouns. And also affirmed another passage in the Bible. What is the Great Commission? Make disciples and baptize them under the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, three in one. Affirmed by the Westminster Shorter Catechism we just read earlier, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God. The same in substance, equal in power and glory. So here we see John the author affirming the theology in our five verses presented throughout Scripture that Jesus, the human Jesus, is divine and the reality of God's Trinitarian nature. Now, at this point, before we move on to our second point, let's go back to what I said earlier in the beginning of the first point. I don't know if you felt it, 
but I felt kind of bored. <laughs> Just a little bit. I, I did. And I feel this a lot when I'm studying the Bible, especially when I'm studying passages like this that are more theological rather than practical. And what I feel, if I'm honest, is a, is a, bit, of, a bit of boredom, maybe, and a bit of frustration. And the source of boredom and frustration for me, by the way, I'm not saying you feel this. I'm, I'm just admitting that I, I feel this. The boredom and frustration that I feel, I think it's caused because of how impractical all that we just talked about might have felt. So what? What's the point of all this, I thought to myself. This is the reason why I stared blankly into my computer screen until 2 a.m. in the morning, because I can't for the life of me figure out why this doctrine or how this doctrine can be presented in such a way that meets your felt needs. I was so scared of this question that you might be having in the back of your mind, so what? Jesus is divine, so what? God is Trinitarian in nature, so what? How does it help me practically? I mean, it's, it's interesting and all that, but how does it meet our practical needs? How does, how does this help me in my career? How does this help me in my love life? How does this help me in my family life? How does this help the crazy political realities that's happening in the city? How does this help the poverty and the injustices in the city? There's so many felt needs to be taken care of, and what we're studying here in this passage seems to be so disconnected from it. But it's at this point that I realize I've been looking at it the wrong way. And until I see what John is trying to explain, what he finds so important to tell us about through this passage, I won't be able to know God truly or grow my relationship with him. And, and, and how is it that we're to value this doctrine, this theology that seems so disconnected from our felt needs? Um, how do we value that? Let's go to our second point. The way to view theology. So, okay, we saw in our first point, we talked about all this doctrine that John the author described in the, in, the, in the five verses, that the person, the human Jesus, that's baptizing, that's walking, he's divine, and, and God is Trinitarian in nature. He, God the Father and God the Son is, is different persons, but equal in ownership, authority, and glory. It's the same in one God as a Father and as, as, as a Spirit. And this isn't only the testimony of John, but Jesus himself testifies to this. Look at verse 32. He, Jesus Christ, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives this testimony. Before I get to, my, to the heart of the second point, let me just go through this. John, the author, explains all this complex doctrine, but Jesus also testifies to this, verse 32 says. If you remember so far in the book of John, what has Jesus been testifying about? He's been testifying about the nature of God and the redemptive history, the redemptive plan of all creation. If you remember, uh, he testified about God the Father in the temple. Um, he said, I think it was John 2.16, he came to the temple, he saw merchants, and he saw, he saw people selling sacrificial animals that, that people are meant to buy and sacrifice so that they can be forgiven from their sins. He saw that, he was upset, and he says, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. He testified to God the Father in the temple. He's saying that God is too holy. God is too righteous. No matter how much you pay, no matter how many goats you kill, you cannot save yourself. You cannot wash away your sins. What does he do? He's saying that God the Father loves sinners. He wants to be with them. The proof is we're in a temple. God instituted the temple in the Old Testament. He wants to be with us. But how can God be with sinners? 
Then he continues in the story. This is where he testifies about God the Son himself. He, he, he drives away the merchants. He drives away the sacrificial animals. And who is now standing alone in this empty temple? Jesus. What is he saying there? He's saying, you don't need to pay these guys for your salvation. I'll pay for it. You don't need to sacrifice these animals to forgive you from your sins. I am the Lamb of God. I will die for you. God the Father, he testified in this temple. God the Son, he testified in this temple about himself. And then after that, remember what happened in the story? The religious authorities got upset. They said, what are you, what are you talking about that you're going to pay for our sins? What, what is all this? So they sent Nicodemus to come to him. And then Nicodemus was like, oh, you must be so spiritual. He was making fun of Jesus and he was attacking Jesus. And he's saying, how can any of this be true? And this is where Jesus testifies to God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. John 3, 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Throughout this whole story, Jesus has been testifying about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Through all his actions, through all his interactions. And this is what John the author here is explaining to us. You've, you've seen the story. You've seen what happened. But do you actually see the realities here? He, he's narrating. He's commentating. You must see it. That, that Jesus, he came from above. He's equal with the Father. He came to pursue us and gave his life for us. Unless we believe in him, God's wrath will remain on us, as he says. So what? Why does any of this matter, John? Tell me how any of this can meet my felt needs. And here's where I realized I fell into a huge mistake that I think many fall into as well. A mistake that kept me up till 2 a.m. Saturday morning trying to figure out how to present this. And it's this. The mistake is that I valued theological knowledge when it helps solve my felt needs. I measure the value and the worth of theological knowledge only to the degree that it solves my felt needs. And, and I think we all are tempted to this. I mean, I know I do it all the time. That's why I couldn't write the sermon. Because I felt like I couldn't present to you this theological knowledge unless it somehow meets your felt needs. And this is a very dangerous mistake. This is what I mean. Let's do an example. For example, Covenant City Church holds two different seminars. And we make flyers for them. And we have the titles and the content of the seminars on both flyers. One flyer reads this. One seminar is about this. What the Bible says about career management, fruitful financial investment, and dating. One flyer says what the Bible says about career management, fruitful financial investment, and dating. And the second flyer reads what the Bible says about the intra-Trinitarian relationship and how it relates to redemptive history which is what John the author talks about, which is what Jesus has been testifying about this whole time, as we've seen. Which event do you think would generally attract more interest? The first one, of course. Who doesn't want to know about career management and, and fruit financial investment and dating? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying those are bad things. I think it's a very noble thing. I think it's a very humble thing to want to learn what God has to say about those things so that you submit these things into your lives. It's, it's good. It's fine. But I think... But I think what's dangerous is that we can fall into the mistake of making theology, which is a study of God, theo, God, theology, the study of God, 
only valuable when it meets our felt needs. This is very dangerous. Why? Because that's not the primary value of theology. And if we continue to view theology in that way, if we continue to view the study of God in that way, as, as a primary way to solve our needs, we're going to miss the greater need that theology tells us we have. Here's what the conclusion I came into. I need to be courageous and tell you guys of this doctrine without it meeting a felt need you might have because the primary value of theology is not to solve a sinner's felt need, but to inform sinners of a greater need they cannot feel. The value of theology is not to meet a sinner's felt need, but it's to inform sinners of a greater need, the greatest need, that they, left to their own devices, cannot feel. And if I continue to treat theology as a way to merely solve our felt needs, you're never going to see the ultimate greatest need that we have, the most urgent, most serious problem and dilemma that we all have. What is this need? Well, everything we just talked about, of the reality of sin, of the holiness and the justice of God, of our fate without a Savior, which is what, at the end of verse 36, the wrath of God remains on us. This is what Jesus came to testify about, verse 32 says. This is the truths of what he has seen and heard, but we reject it, verse 32 says. We don't receive it. We say, that's not what I need, God. I don't need you to tell me of the consequences of my sin before a holy and righteous God. I need you to tell me how to run a successful business. That's what I need. I need you to tell me how to fix my love life. That's what I need. I need you to tell me how to fix the political problem in the city. That's what we ultimately need. And John the author and Jesus Christ tells you through this passage, no, it's not. That is a need, absolutely. But that is not your greatest need. There's something much greater. There's something much more urgent. Again, I'm not minimizing these things. But if we only study scripture in order to meet our felt needs, it's going to make our Christianity all about trying to fit God into our stories. Instead of the right thing, which is seeing how we fit into his story. That's what theology is about. That's what the Bible is about. Not to solve our felt needs, but to inform us of a need that we, without God's word, cannot feel. And that is our need for a savior. We'll do anything to hide this need. Even good things. Remember, that what, this is a commentary on what just happened. Who has Jesus been interacting with this whole time? Religious leaders. Who knew their Bibles? Who did he get into conflict with in the temple? Religious leaders. They know their scripture. Who did, get, who did he get into conflict to afterwards? Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, as we read. He knew his scripture. Who are the ones that rejected the testimony of Jesus? The religious leaders, the ones studying the scriptures. They studied theology, but they made theology about everything else but their need for a savior. See, it's possible to study scripture and reject Jesus' testimony at the same time about the holiness of God that cannot be with sin, about the problem that we have of being sinners, about God the Father who though loves the Son, verse 35 says, and the love that the Father has for the Son is like nothing you've ever experienced before. Though the Father loves the Son, God the Father gave him up for sinners who daily rebel against him. 
about God the Son who pursued sinners and died for them on the cross. Though he has authority over everything, though he owns everything, though he is above all, he condescended down to us, was born in a manger, washed his disciples' feet, endured being misunderstood, and at the end of the life, he was crucified naked, owning nothing, so that he can have you. And about God the Spirit that regenerates our hearts, makes us able to see this truth and accept this gospel and seal our salvation. I pray you don't make the same mistake I did in prepping the sermon. And trust God in his word that you have a need, a greater need than any felt need we might feel like we have. I'm not minimizing those felt needs. I'm heightening this need that we so often miss. You and I have a problem greater than any problem, and that is our sin before a holy and just God. So we've seen what Jesus' testimony is. We've seen what John the author is trying to tell us by, by explaining the divinity of Jesus, the nature of the Trinitarian nature of God. And we've talked about how people reject that, but we have not yet talked about how to receive this testimony. Verse 33 says, whoever, yes, people reject, but verse 33, who, 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. How then are we called to receive this testimony? What do we do? Let's go to our last point. The surprising command. Okay, so, so now I see that John, what John the author is talking about. Now I see what Jesus' testimony is as it described in verse 32. What then do I do? What's, what's the application here? What, what am I called? How am I called to respond? Well, it's a surprising one. Why do I say it's a surprising one? Let's, let's talk about the last verse. This is how we're called to respond after hearing such a great testimony and, and, and a great Doctrinal truth. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The application, therefore, is simply, he says, to believe and obey the Son. So in other words, to believe and obey Jesus. Now, this is surprising and could be confusing to us because sometimes when somebody calls you to obey, what we naturally think is that we are called to action. Obey this, that means I have to do something. That means I have to, I'm called to action, to, to, to perform something. But this time, it's actually the opposite. The call to obedience here is not the call to do, but to receive. Again, one more time, remember, this passage is a commentary on the events that has just happened prior to chapter 3, verses 31 and 36. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't command us to do anything, he does. Of course he does. He commands us to do a lot of things. But in the book of John, up to now, he hasn't yet. Let's, just so we're convinced, okay? Just so we're convinced, let's, let's talk about everything that's happened, seven events in total. There are seven events that's happened in Jesus' life. I won't take too long, I promise. Seven events in Jesus' life that's happened so far, and none of it is a call to do, but all of it is a call to receive. Let's see. First event, chapter 1, verses 29 to 34, is when Jesus first meets John the Baptist. John the Baptist proclaims that Jesus Christ will save us by giving us the Holy Spirit, saying that salvation is from him, not from us. Jesus is saying, receive me. Okay? 
He will save us through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not, not our own strength, not our own righteousness. Second event, chapter 1, verse 35 to 42. Jesus again encounters John the Baptist second time. This is the second event so far in, in the book of John. And John the Baptist proclaims that Jesus is who? The Lamb of God that will be sacrificed for our sins. And Jesus Christ, after this, met his first disciples, Andrew, John, and Peter. And they all testify that this is the Messiah. This is the one who will come and save us. Salvation is from him, not from us. Jesus is saying, receive me. Third event, chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. Jesus meets two more of his disciples, Philip and Nathaniel. Jesus tells them that he is the Messiah the Old Testament has been pointing to, and he's the one who will come and save sinners. That's what the whole thing was about. I'm where salvation comes from, Jesus says. Receive me. Fourth event, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, the wedding in, in Cana. You guys studied this. You guys probably know about it, where Jesus... Turn the water to wine. It's a pretty popular story. What is actually happening there? The, the wedding feast, they're out of wine, and they don't know where to get wine from, which is a huge shame and embarrassment at the culture at the time. Uh, so what Jesus did is he took water jars, stone jars, that was filled with water. This water was meant to purify the people in the wedding from their sins. That's kind of the culture at the time. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you don't need water purification. I'm going to turn these things into wine. What does wine symbolize in the Old Testament? The blood of the Messiah. What does wine symbolize in the New Testament? The blood of Christ. Drink this wine, right, in communion. He's saying these things meant for purification won't clean you. You can wash yourself all you want. Just like those goats you're going to kill, they won't clean you. I will purify you. Drink this wine. Salvation comes from me. Receive. Fifth event, Jesus cleansed the temple, as we talked about earlier. Don't pay these merchants for your salvation. Don't kill these animals for your salvation. I will pay. I will die for you. Receive. Sixth event, conversation with Nicodemus, explaining the spirit, this is all this is confusing, and you probably won't be able to receive it, until the spirit comes to you and makes you able to receive it. Salvation comes from me. Receive. Last event, chapter 3, verses 20 to 30. Jesus baptizing near John the Baptist, and John the Baptist saying, Jesus is the groom who will die for the bride. The bride is the church, the groom is Christ, and that he will purify her and adorn her with his righteousness as he is stripped naked on that cross. Salvation is from me. Receive. And that leads us all the way to our passage today. John, the author, says, obey the Son. Obey what? He hasn't told me to do one thing yet. All he said is to receive. Well, there you go. Obeying the Son here means receive. Obey the Son and stop doing good things to save yourself. If you do anything for your salvation, you are disobeying the Son. The degree to which you do good things to make God love you more is the degree to which you are disobeying the Son. The degree to which you do religious things to atone for your own sins is the degree to which you are disobeying the Son. The degree to which you believe you must first clean yourself to receive this gospel is the degree to which you are disobeying the Son. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is why this command is surprising. Because it's a command to receive, not to do. Now, before I end, I want to just say one thing. It's kind of away from the passage, but I think that's okay. 
I just want to reaffirm, I don't mean that the passage doesn't, or the Bible doesn't call us to do nothing. Of course, there's a bunch of commands in the Bible, but it all centers around Jesus' testimony, around this gospel. Does the scripture talk about, does it, does it help us meet a felt need of, of, of how to navigate through marriage? Of course it does. It explains the dynamic between the husband and the wife. The husband is to lead the wife and sacrifice for the wife as Christ did the church, and the wife is called to submit to the husband as the church does to Christ. Now, I talked with somebody recently. She had a great question about what the Bible means about woman submitting, because that sounds kind of scary. You know, it can be kind of abusive. And I said, absolutely it can. That's why you should never submit yourself to any man who isn't willing to sacrifice for you like Christ did for the church, or also lead to abuse. You can't know the dynamics of marriage. You can't know how to navigate through all that unless you understand the testimony of Jesus about the gospel. Does it talk about the felt need of finances? Absolutely. 2 Corinthians 8.9 uh, tells you to dwell on the fact that Jesus who was rich became poor for you. That's why. That's the way you should view your money. And it tells you that your identity is not found in your bank account. It's found in the fact that he who was rich became poor for you and died for you. That's your identity. You don't need to... Uh, uh, at, at, Save money in such a way that somehow it brings value to you, but also it, it doesn't only free you from the, the, the self-righteousness of, of prosperity, it also frees you from the self-righteousness of poverty. Some people think the more I give, the more spiritual I am. The poorer I am, the harder my life is, the more righteous I am. No, it doesn't. Your righteousness is in Christ. To know how to navigate through all that, you've got to understand the gospel. You've got to understand Jesus' testimony. The Bible talks about all this, all these felt needs, and so much more. And when you receive the Son, when you obey the Son and receive Him, you will start doing these things. It's called the, fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. But first, we are called to obey His command to receive. And if we don't obey His command to receive, no matter how much of His commandments you do, the wrath of God remains upon us. Because according to John in our passage and according to Jesus' testimony throughout the book of John, God is too holy, man is too sinful, but Christ is all-sufficient. Have you obeyed the Son to stop doing and receive? Have you? Or are you still trying to be good enough because somehow doing good makes our salvation more secure. Stop. Obey the Son. Receive. And I pray through studying the Word of God today, though we may not leave this room with our felt needs met, I pray that we would leave seeing a need that we haven't seen before. Or perhaps, if you are in Christ already, be reminded of a need you might have forgotten which is a constant need for a Savior. And if God be so gracious, I pray to him that you will find this need met today in Christ through his cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you sent the most precious thing in heaven, your son, to die for us. Jesus, we thank you so much that though you own everything and is above all things, you gladly gave it up so that you may have us. And Holy Spirit, we praise you and thank you 
that you love us so much. You did not leave our salvation up to chance, but you came into our hearts and renewed it and sealed it for yourself that we may embrace this gospel. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God of God, one God, we praise you, we love you, we thank you, we're unworthy of you. And I beg you, as we speak of these truths, make this need great in our hearts. But as you make this need great, as you make this problem more urgent, make the cross greater still. That you have given us the solution to this problem. You have met this need. Look at your hands and feet. Look at the love of God. Thank you for who you are. Jesus, Son of God, we praise you, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.